Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name's Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, as the saying goes, all good things must come to an end, and so today we are closing out our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, or as Catholics call it, the Our Father. Uh, The sermon series that we have come to entitle, and the graphic is up here on the monitor, we have come to entitle this series, Pray Like This. Um, Over the past month and a half as a congregation, we have become obsessed with the Lord's Prayer, haven't we? Uh, We have become fascinated with this prayer that was given to us by Jesus himself. Now, as a reminder, we find the Lord's Prayer in two of the four Gospels. So there are four Gospels in the New Testament. What are they? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We find the Lord's Prayer in two of the four Gospels. And which Gospels are those? The Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. We don't find it in Mark, we don't find it in John, but we do find the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. The Lord's Prayer is a familiar prayer that many of us grew up learning But seldom when we're praying this prayer, either individually or collectively, seldom when we're praying this prayer, do we take the time to stop and actually think about the words that we're saying. And so our aim, our goal in the sermon series has been to pump the brakes, slow down, and really dig into this prayer so that we can better understand and more fully appreciate these remarkable words given to us by Jesus. Because the truth is, when it comes down to it, the Lord's Prayer has so much to offer, doesn't it? I heard a story recently about a man whose mom was sick, and then eventually she passed away. So after the funeral was over, he was at his mom's house, and he was going through her belongings, and some of you have been there before when a parent passed away. And he was trying to decide what to throw away, what to keep, what to sell, what to give to other members of the family. Well, as he was doing all that, he sat down in his mom's favorite chair with a cup of coffee in the living room. Right beside the chair was a small table, and on top of the table was his mom's Bible, her personal Bible that she would read for him each morning. So he picked up the Bible, he began to thumb through it. He noticed that his mom had written down on some of the pages the letters T-P. T-P, he said. I wonder what that means. And then later he learned what it meant. TP, tested and proven. That's exactly what we could say about the Lord's Prayer. This is a prayer that has been tested and proven, and it's no surprise. (laughs) It's no wonder. It was given to us by the Lord Jesus himself. And so what I would like for us to do collectively as a congregation, whether you're worshiping in the sanctuary or you're worshiping from home, I would like us to collectively recite the Lord's Prayer together. So let's say this prayer. If you're not familiar with it, don't worry. It's up here in the monitors. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, before we go any further, I want to start by breaking down the Lord's Prayer. So the Lord's Prayer begins by addressing God, our Father who art in heaven. That's how we address God. That's how we refer to God. That's how we speak to God. And then from there, the Lord's Prayer moves to seven petitions, seven requests that we make of God in this prayer. Now, the first three of these petitions are about the things that we want God to do for God's sake. They're all about God and the glory of God. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So again, these are the things that we want God to do for God's sake. These are the things that we want God to accomplish for God's sake. So we start by addressing God. There are the first three petitions. And then the last four petitions are those things that we want God to do for us as human beings, how we want God to respond to us, how we want God to interact with us. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, and then but deliver us from evil. So again, addressing God, the seven petitions. And then that brings us to the very last line, which has come to be called the doxology of the Lord's Prayer. And I'll say more about that in a moment. Uh, but that last line is this, and this is the line that we're going to focus on this morning. Let's say it together. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, what's interesting is, if we were to go to a modern translation of the Bible, take, for example, the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's the translation that I typically preach from. Here's a copy of the NLT that somebody in our congregation gifted to me a while ago. If we were to go to a modern translation of the Bible, like the NLT, and open it up to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 6, because remember, we find the Lord's Prayer in two of the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Luke. It's in Luke 11 and Matthew 6. But if we were to go to Matthew 6, open it up, here's what we would discover in the NLT, the New Living Translation. This is also true of the NIV, the New International Version, which are the pew Bibles in front of you. First, we would find a modern translation of the Lord's Prayer that's different than the translation that we just prayed a moment ago. That's the first thing we would find. But the second thing we would find is at the end of verse 13, there's an asterisk. What does an asterisk do? Where does an asterisk take us? To a footnote at the bottom of the page. This is what the footnote says. This is from my Bible. Some manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That line wouldn't be there in a modern translation. Instead, that line would be relegated to a footnote. For some manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, what's all this about? Well, keep in mind that when we typically pray the Lord's Prayer, as we just did a few moments ago, we don't pray it from a modern translation of the Bible, like the New Living Translation or the New International Version. Instead, as Protestants, we generally pray the Lord's Prayer from one of two older English translations of the Bible. By the way, we typically pray Matthew's version instead of Luke's version from one of two 
older English translations of the Bible, either William Tyndale's translation, the New Testament portion was published almost 500 years ago in 1525, or from the King James Version of the Bible, which was published later on after Tyndale's translation was published in 1611, more than 400 years ago. Now, as the United Methodist, does anybody know which of these two translations United Methodists generally use when we pray the Lord's Prayer? So I was under the impression that we typically use the King James Version of the Bible, but then I actually did some more research and I discovered, no, we actually use William Tyndale's translation, and there's a reason for this. Because it eventually became a part of the Book of Common Prayer in the Church of England. How many of you are familiar with the Book of Common Prayer? The Book of Common Prayer is a liturgical resource, a worship resource that the Church of England uses. And John Wesley, who founded the Methodist movement, John Wesley was born in 1703, he died in 1791. Well, John Wesley was baptized in the Church of England. He grew up in the Church of England. He was a pastor in the Church of England. He came out of that context. So historically, Methodists have come to use Tyndale's translation of Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer rather than the King James Version's translation. Are you all still with me so far? Have I lost anybody? Even if I've lost you, don't say anything so I can feel good. <laughs> now, the main difference between Tyndale's translation and the King James Version, Tyndale uses the word trespasses. The King James Version uses the word debts. How many of you grew up saying debts instead of trespasses? If that was the case, you probably grew up in a tradition that made use of the King James Version's uh, translation of the Lord's Prayer instead of Tyndale's. So that's the main difference between these two translations. Catholics, on the other hand, I know some of you grew up Catholic or you have a Catholic background or maybe a Catholic spouse. Catholics, on the other hand, don't use either one of these two translations. They don't use Tyndale's translation or the King James Version of the Bible. These are Protestant translations that came into being when Christians in England started to break away from the Catholic Church. And all of that came to a head under the reign of King Henry VIII. You remember learning about this when you were in school. Now, at the time, hundreds of years ago, and I promise this history lesson is about to come to an end, but at the time, hundreds of years ago, when these two translations were being worked on and developed, the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament, Greek manuscripts that we had available to us, were from the 900s A.D., or the 1000s A.D., and these manuscripts included the line, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Of course, it would have been in Greek, but that line was there. Then what happened after these two translations, the Tyndale's, the King James Version, after they were published and distributed and people got used to them and familiar with them and, and churches started using them? Well, archaeologists found older manuscripts of the New Testament from the 300s A.D., the 400s A.D., these manuscripts did not include that line, for that is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, which told scholars that this line likely is not original to the Lord's Prayer. Instead, the early Christians eventually came to add it. That's why Catholics generally don't say it, and Protestants do, because Again, we got used to saying it because of Tyndale and because of the King James Version of the Bible. 
when those translations were published, they had manuscripts of the New Testament that weren't as old as the manuscripts that modern translators now have. It's likely not original to the Lord's Prayer. It was added later on. Now, why would the early Christians have done that? Well, of course, we don't know the real answer. We can only speculate, but a number of scholars believe that it was inspired by the Jewish tendency after a statement was made or a verse was given to offer God a final word of praise and glory. This is known as a doxology, hence why we call it the doxology of the Lord's Prayer. Doxology comes from the Greek word for praise. Later on in this service, after we take up an offering, uh, we're going to sing a doxology. How does it go? I'm not going to sing it, but let's say it together because I'm not a singer. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. This is the doxology. It's a word of praise. What we find here at the end of the Lord's Prayer is the doxology. It's as if the early Christians were saying, yeah, this prayer is really awesome. This prayer is really great that Jesus gave to us. But, but it just needs that final word of praise. Now, the early Christians may have added the doxology later on. But folks, make no mistake about it. This doxology is very much rooted in, grounded in Scripture. In fact, this doxology basically mimics the words that King David, David was king over Israel, what David says in the Old Testament book of 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11. It's up here in the monitors. David says this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord, and this is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Can you see the similarity? We can see the similarity between what David says here in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11, and the doxology of the Lord's Prayer. Three words show up in David's verse, what David writes. Kingdom, power, glory. These same three words show up in the doxology of the Lord's Prayer. So what I want to do as a congregation, as we close out this sermon series, as we bring these conversations to a close, is I want to unpack these three words with you. Kingdom, power, glory. I didn't have to work very hard in organizing this sermon. The doxology of the Lord's Prayer did all the organizational work for me. And so we start with the first word. Let's say it together. Kingdom. In the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, what do we say? Thy kingdom come. And here in the doxology of the Lord's Prayer, we say, for thine is the kingdom. The word kingdom shows up two times in this prayer. So I'm going to remind us of something that we spoke about a few weeks ago when we talked about the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God refers to the reign of God. It refers to the dominion of God, the rule of God, the domain of God. That when God came among us 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ, that God ushered in a kingdom. God brought forward a kingdom that he invites us as his people to be a part of. And drawing from the Bible, theologians remind us that there are two dimensions to God's kingdom. How many dimensions? Two. There's the already and the not yet. First, the already. The already is the present dimension. That's the dimension that is already here, hence why we call it the already. That's the dimension that we experience when lives are changed, 
When people come to salvation in Jesus Christ, when broken people are made whole, when injustice is overcome, when hungry people are fed or, or naked people are clothed, that's the kingdom of God in our midst, breaking in all around us. There's the already, and then there's the not yet. That's the future dimension. That's the dimension that we haven't yet experienced. That's the dimension that you and I will come to experience one day in the future when Jesus returns. When Jesus comes back to our planet and we have faith that he's going to come back. Why? Because he said he's going to come back. Because scripture teaches that he's going to come back. We don't know when it's going to happen. If somebody ever tells you that they know when Jesus is going to return, go in the other direction, they have no idea what they're talking about. Jesus himself said no one knows the day or the hour. But when Jesus does come back, he's going to bring the kingdom of God to full completion, full fruition, which means that evil will be eradicated. There will be no more sin or suffering or cancer or disease or death or racism, or classism, or sexism. As John says in the book of Revelation, the old order of things will have passed away. Everything will be made new. The already and the not yet. So here's what you and I are called to do as Christ followers by God's grace. We are called to faithfully live into the already of God's kingdom and joyfully anticipate the not yet. I love how Jesus puts it in the Sermon on the Mount. Just after he gives us the Lord's Prayer, this is what Jesus says later on in Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek the kingdom of God, what? Above all else. Now notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, put the kingdom of God on the back burner. He doesn't say, seek the kingdom of God moderately. He doesn't say, put your career first and then seek God's kingdom. He doesn't say, you know, finish school, settle down, get married, have children. Oh, and then seek the kingdom of God. No, he says, seek the kingdom of God above all else. That as Christians, we're to invest our time, our energy, our money, our resources in God's kingdom. And we are to serve God's kingdom no matter what. Even when that kingdom clashes with the kingdoms of the world. Make no mistake about it, the kingdom of God is inherently political. Of course it's political. It has a king. So there will come times and moments when God's kingdom will clash against the kingdoms of the world. Somebody who knew about that is this guy by the name of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. How many of you are familiar with Diedrich Bonhoeffer? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born in 1906. When he was a young man, he was a professor of theology, teaching at a university in Germany when Adolf Hitler came to power. This is going to disturb and unsettle us, but when Adolf Hitler came to power in Germany, much of the church in Germany went along with what Hitler was doing because people sincerely believed that Adolf Hitler was Germany's best hope. World War I, and historians will tell us this, World War I had really taken a toll on Germany. And so Adolf Hitler, in the 1920s and the 1930s, he rose from the ashes as this charismatic leader who made all kinds of bold promises. He promised to strengthen Germany's economy, to expand Germany's borders, to make Germany a leading power in the world. And then when Hitler... And the Nazis began to round up Jews and shipped them off to concentration camps. Many Christians 
Look the other way. None of our business. We can't get involved. Oh, it's probably not as bad as people are saying. In fact, there's even a story about a church that on Sunday morning when they would gather for worship, they would sing hymns as loud as they possibly could. Why? Because just outside the church building where there's a railroad track, and on the cars or in the cars would be Jews screaming as they were being brought to a concentration camp. They didn't want to hear all that, so let's just sing the hymns louder. Christ have mercy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer refused to look the other way. His commitment to God's kingdom mattered more than his own safety. He was actually a part of an underground movement that sought to overthrow Hitler. And then the Nazis found out about it, so he was arrested, he was imprisoned. And then in April of 1945, just before America liberated that camp, he was hanged. This is what Diedrich Bonhoeffer said as he was awaiting execution. The kingdom of God is a kingdom stronger than war and danger, a kingdom of power and authority, a kingdom that makes a way for itself and summons human beings to itself to prepare its way, a kingdom for which it is worth while risking our lives. Folks, it is worth risking our lives for God's kingdom. Bonhoeffer didn't just say those words, he died by those words, and in doing so, he reminded all of us that the kingdom of God deserves our all. How did Jesus put it? Seek the kingdom of God above all else. We are to serve God's kingdom even when that kingdom clashes with the kingdoms of this world. For that is the kingdom. And the what? And the power. That's the second word. The word power in the New Testament comes from the Greek word dynamis, where we get our English word dynamite, which always makes me think of Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner. That's just where my mind goes. But it refers to this explosive power, and God is powerful. There's no question about that. When I was a kid growing up in, in Sunday school, there was a song that I learned, and maybe some of you learned it too. Again, I'm not a singer, so I'll just say the words. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Say it with me. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are his, the, the rivers are his, the skies are his handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. That was pretty good, right? There's nothing God cannot do. God merely spoke, and this entire cosmos came into being. God holds the universe in the palm of his hand. And yet, the truth is, it is impossible to understand God's power without also understanding God's love. The Bible doesn't say that God is power. The Bible says God has power, but the Bible doesn't say God is power. The Bible does say in 1 John 4 that God is love. Love is the channel through which God exercises divine power. God doesn't exercise divine power through manipulation like human beings do. God doesn't exercise divine power through coercion. God does not exercise divine power through brute force. God does not exercise divine power by turning us into robots or puppets and making us do whatever he wants. God exercises divine power through love. And since Jesus' death on the cross is the ultimate demonstration of God's love, Jesus' death on the cross is also the ultimate demonstration of God's power. The Apostle Paul makes this very point in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Take a look. 
Paul says the message of the cross is foolish. In other words, it doesn't make any sense to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved, he's talking about followers of Jesus, we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. Do you want to see the power of God? Look no further than Jesus on the cross. That's God's power because that's the ultimate demonstration of his love. Love is the channel through which God exercises divine power. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Here's a simple way of thinking about this last word. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about any of us. It's about God. It's about lifting God's name high. It's about advancing God's purposes. It's about revealing God to the whole world. That's what I love about this last line of the prayer. It just confronts our spiritual narcissism. It humbles us and reminds us that everything we do, including how we live our lives, is all for the glory of God. Amen? All for the glory of God. My favorite gospel is the gospel of John. I love Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but oh my goodness, my favorite gospel is John's gospel. At the end of John's gospel, we find a story that we don't find anywhere else in the gospels. It's a story just after the resurrection. Jesus and Peter are on the beach. They're having a conversation. It's a difficult conversation because earlier Peter had denied Jesus three times. Well, during that conversation, Jesus once again invites Peter to follow him, and then he reminds Peter that eventually he's going to die a martyr's death. And that through his death, that's how Peter's going to glorify God. This is what Jesus says to Peter, John 21, verses 18 and 19. I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him, that is Peter, know by what kind of death he would what? Glorify God. And then Jesus told him, follow me. For Peter, following Jesus meant following Jesus to death. You and I probably won't have to follow Jesus to death, but we will have to follow him to some difficult places. That's what discipleship is all about. When we do follow him to those difficult places, remember, it's not about us. It's about God. Everything we do, including how we live our lives, it's all for the glory of God. During the announcements, Alina mentioned our Lenten devotionals. I want to thank David Vatcher, our editor, and all those who contributed to the Lenten devotionals. I also hope that you will take the time during the Lenten season to check out those devotionals, to read them, allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you through those devotionals. I want to end my sermon, and in fact, this entire series by sharing with you a story that I offer in my devotional. And this story is not actually my story. It comes from Will Willimon, who was a United Methodist bishop, but before he was a bishop for a number of years, he was the dean of the chapel at Duke University in North Carolina. Willimon says that when he was at Duke, he knew this undergraduate student. Her name was Sarah. Sarah was incredibly bright, exceptionally gifted, she was the top-performing student in her classes. She was the kind of person who could do whatever she wanted to do in life, but she was a follower of Jesus. 
and she felt that God was calling her to be a pastor. And not just a pastor, but a pastor in a very poor community. Even if it meant that financially she was going to struggle. So one day, after she had graduated and she was at this church in this poor community, Willemann was in the car and he was driving with another professor from Duke, and they happened to be in that same community where Sarah's church was. So the professor said to Willemann, well, let's go pay Sarah a visit. Let's, let's go stop by and see her. He said, all right. So they went down this dirt road. They pulled the car into the gravel parking lot. Immediately, they saw this run-down, dilapidated building in desperate need of repair. And they just sat there together for a few moments in the parking lot, just absorbing it all. And then finally, the professor, Willemann's colleague, blurted out, Sarah had such potential. What a waste of talent. What a waste of a life. It wasn't a waste. For Sarah, she knew that God had called her to this community. Serving this community is how she was glorifying God. How is God calling you? How is God inviting you to glorify Him? It's not about you. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, it's not about us. Please forgive me. Forgive all of us when we make it about us. Remind us, God, that we are to serve your kingdom no matter what. Remind us, God, that you are powerful, that you exercise that power through love. And remind us, God, that we are to glorify you in every detail of our lives. Please help us to follow you, to be obedient to you, even when you take us to some pretty difficult places. God, thank you for your Holy Spirit who continues to empower us to be about the work of Jesus in this world. We pray that we would feel the power in the presence of the Spirit day in and day out, as we live as your people. We ask all these things in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.